You may be seated. I don't know that too many of you keep up with the NFL draft, the National Football League draft, but I've been tracking with a story, and I found it interesting that yesterday afternoon, um, a moment in time took place that a young man had dreamed about for a long time. His name is Shaquem Griffin. What's interesting about Shaquem is not so much that he was the 141st all-around draft pick in the NFL yesterday by the Seattle Seahawks, but what's interesting about this story is that the Seattle Seahawks drafted a dysfunctional football player. You need to look closely. Maybe you didn't catch it. There's no left hand. Shaquem has no left hand. It's a birth defect, and doctors removed his left hand uh, after he was born. And all of his life, he's grown up uh, with that stump on the end of his no hand and uh, one functioning hand. One thing that was kind of interesting in his uh, human interest story yesterday is that when they chose him, of course, it was the fulfillment of a lifelong dream. He was a standout uh, Division I college football player in Central Florida. He's had a good year. He has a twin brother who's also with the Seattle Seahawks, and it was their dream to be able to play ball together. It's a great story. His brother's name is Shaquille. And these guys um, both now are Seattle Seahawks. I found a quote Uh, from Shaquem that I thought uh, was very striking as he was being interviewed there after the draft was announced. He said this. He said, my dad never allowed me to make an excuse why I can't catch a ball. And that's a testimony about the influence of a dad, isn't it? But it's also a good setup for where we are today. We're going to talk about dysfunction And you can either let your dysfunctions define you or you can work through them and make them part of your story of grace. You know what a dysfunction is, don't you? A dysfunction is uh, an abnormality. It is an impairment. Um, If you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, uh, it even adds a definition that pertains to Shaquem. It it is when pertaining to a, a bodily organ... Uh, It is incomplete to be dysfunctional, to have a shortfall, to have something that's not right. Now, we had a young youth pastor here a few years ago that many of you know and love. His name is Billy Hearn, and he used to have a little saying, and he would say, everybody's got issues. Everybody's got issues. You know, we live in a sin-cursed world, and everybody has issues. I was struck by this picture of this little girl who lives in a dysfunctional home. She lives in a home where um, it's completely out of order and there she is eating her meal in the middle of a room that is a disaster zone. I want us to talk about dysfunction today and I want us to talk about dysfunction in our homes. I'm not as concerned about the dysfunction of messiness, although that is and can be a huge issue. I want us to talk about having a healthy, Christ-centered, God-honoring home where marriages thrive and children grow up to love Christ and where we are productive and loving and happy. 
But man, it's easy to pile up the baggage, isn't it? And uh, we have, all of us at some level, issues to deal with. We'll call that baggage this morning. And so here's where we are in our sermon series on the Christian home and family, is we ask the question, what do I do with all the baggage in my life? I've got too much baggage. You might say, Pastor Van, I'm trying to live for Christ. I'm trying to have a Christ-centered home. I want my kids to grow up to love the Lord, but I've just got a bunch of residual baggage from decisions and from sin and and from other people. And so this morning we want to talk about what do we do with all the dysfunction or the baggage of dysfunction in our homes. I invite you to turn to Psalm 32 this morning, which we will use as our text. You need to know that Psalm 32 was written by a dysfunctional author. Uh, A guy who is characterized by dysfunction in many ways. A guy who stacked up significant baggage in his life. King David. He's well known for killing Goliath. What a young man of faith he was. God used him. God appointed him king. Samuel anointed him king. But I just wonder if you really realize how much baggage David had in his life. It wasn't long after he was anointed king that he was playing his harp as a musician uh, in King Saul's court. And King Saul began to throw spears at him on a regular basis in temper fits. So he's employed by a guy who throws spears at him and tries to kill him. I think he had PTSD after that. He ran around the wilderness with a band of, of outlaws, so to speak, for 10 years waiting for God's time to appoint him to the kingdom. During that time, King Saul chased him with all of the force of his army trying to murder him. So for 10 years, he lived with a price on his head. Nothing was normal in his life. He was a wanted man. During that time, he married an assembly of wives. He had some concubines. He began to have children. Later in his life, when he was established in his kingdom, he had a son who rose up and tried to, tried to bring about a coup against his father's kingdom. One of the things that he did was he slept with his wives uh, to, to try to um, humiliate his father. Uh, that young man who started a coup against his father ended up being murdered by one of David's generals when he was hanging from a tree by his hair. He had an adult son who, had, who raped his adult half-sister. His his life was a shambles. He had major things like that going on. His son rapes his daughter. And as a father, he does nothing. He was the personification of passivity. This guy was borderline dysfunctional and he just accumulated baggage in his life. When we turn to Psalm 32, Bible students don't know exactly when King David wrote this. Uh, It is a a song of of penitence. There are seven penitential psalms. The most familiar one is probably Psalm 51. This Psalm 32, uh, many Bible students believe that he wrote it right after Psalm 51. At a time in his life when he was in his mid-50s, the Bible tells us it was the spring of the year. It was a time when kings go out to war. And here in his mid-50s probably was his age. He decided to send his generals out to war. Another little mode of passivity sweeping over him. And he doesn't 
rise up and lead well. He's at home one evening. He takes a walk. Evidently, it was warm out, and he wanted some air. He goes out onto the balcony of his palace bedroom, and he looks down upon his neighbor, and he sees, inappropriately, his neighbor's wife. He likes what he sees. He sends his servants. They bring her up. He begins a relationship with her that produces a child. But not only that, he then, to try to cover his sin, one bad decision upon another, he actually manipulates the circumstances out on the battlefield by sending specific orders. And he has her husband, who is an honorable man, Uriah the Hittite, and has him murdered. David was 100% culpable for the murder of Uriah. His life is just tumbling around in a mess. And then one day, God's man comes and taps him on the chest. It's possible that this psalm was written in response to that. Could have been another time because David had many deep, dark valleys of death with which he walked through. Nathan the prophet, Psalm 51, we know is written in response to that for sure. Possibly Psalm 32. Taps him on the chest. Brings about a word of conviction. And David repents. And he begins to embrace some baggage in his life and he begins to make change. So what I'd like to do is I would like to interact with Psalm 32 and I would like to, to recognize in Psalm 32 some of, the, some of the things that have to happen if you're going to overcome baggage in your life. If you're going to win over the dysfunctions of your life, you're going to have to do some things that David did. You're going to have to say some things that David said. You're going to have to believe some things that David believed. Now, it occurs to me that young people are really at an advantage. You see, you haven't had time to stack up the baggage in your life like this. I'm talking about young people who are 14, 15, 16 years old. And I really want to challenge you this morning that you are at a great opportunity to, to listen to the Word of God, to commit to the obedience of the Word of God, and to experience in your life in a way that maybe your parents can't even do the, the, blessing, the blessings of obedience in your life. In fact, I brought my marker board along um, What's your name again? Billy. Kabochik. That's third service. I can't remember names right now. Help me out here, would you, Billy? Grab my marker board and let's bring my marker board to the service. I know Bill Kabochik really well and he's a dear brother. And I'm sorry I forgot your name. I forgot the deacon's name over there. I'm pretty sure I'm married to Janet this morning. I know I am. But... Uh, um, Thank you, Bill. That'll do it. That'll do it, man. Thank you. I don't know if you can. You see over there a little bit. So I, I thought um, I, I thought I would remind you of of a, of a really important concept that I invented when I was a youth pastor. Um, it's from my studied observation of young people. I've shared this with you many times. So if you already know this, bear with me. There are people here that need to know this, especially young people. And you need to understand that you need, if you are younger than 19 years old, you need to be afraid of turning 19. And here's my whole point. I'm going to take just a minute here and I'm going to help you with something. I want the young people to really listen to the message today. I want the old people too, but I want the young people really to listen to the message today. Because, Boak, you can, you can save yourself a truckload of baggage 
if you just yield to the word of God. You see, uh, what I figured out was that, and, and let me make a, what do you call that? Whatever it is in geometry. And um, yeah, whatever he said. And there you have this arch, I call it. And um, what I think is that the, there is an apex to idiocy. And the apex to idiocy is up here. And what this is, it, 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 is, it is a 19-year-old college sophomore. Okay? And I know some of you have heard this before. But a 19-year-old college sophomore, I have concluded, is the dumbest creature on God's green earth. Okay? So... If you're 19 and you're not in college, you're not quite as dumb as somebody who is in college. If you're in the Army or the Marine Corps, you're not quite as dumb as somebody who is in college. So if you're like 15 over here, you're, you're getting up the apex, you're working your way up, 17, here's 18, you need to worry. And then when you turn 20, you're thinking to yourself, I'm doing a little bit better. How about 21? At about 23, your parents will think you're doing better even. <laughs> You know, we laugh and we think it's funny. But here's my whole point, young people. I wanted to get your attention and I wanted to challenge you. Listen to me. I guarantee you there are a bunch of people in this room right now who wish they could go back to their 19-year-old college sophomore year and redo it. Because that's the year they begin to pile up some baggage that they're still dealing with in their lives. And if you'll humble yourself and you'll listen to the word of God, you don't have to start piling up baggage in your life. Baggage that, that becomes the influence of dysfunction. And so as we turn to Psalm 32 and we have our notes positioned, we want to learn from King David. And, and we realize that, uh, that David is, is at a point in his life where he wants to deal with things with God. Let's read our text in its entirety and then let's turn to our outline and let's try to draw from this as we interact with David and what is happening in his life as he's seeking change. Psalm 32, beginning with verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Some people say Selah. It means to stop and to think about it and to meditate. Take it in. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
The first thing I want you to observe as David begins to write this song is that he tells us that there is such a thing as a new beginning. There is such a thing as a new beginning. If you've been stacking up baggage in your life, if you are challenged with dysfunction, I want you to know that David wants you to know, and he experienced it himself, that there is a such thing as a new beginning. Praise God. This is the hope that there is in dysfunction. There is hope in dysfunction. I want you to know there's hope today in Christ, through God, in Christ. I want you to understand, letter A, that this is a spiritual reality is where it begins. It's a spiritual reality. And I want you to see the the terms that David uses. He begins saying, blessed is the one. That's how Psalm 1 began. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the, the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed. This is someone whose life is is ordered to the degree that he has the blessing of obedience and it results in a joy-filled life. It is a joy-filled life resulting from the blessings of obedience. Blessed is the one whose transgression, you could actually translate that word blessed, happy. But it's not just a a party happy, it is a deep-seated joy that results in happiness beside, in spite of circumstances. Blessed is the one who transgre- whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Notice that David used three different words for sin. Three different sin terms there. The first one is transgression. You need to understand as he writes there, blessed is the one whose transgression, what's he talking about? The nuance in the Hebrew there of the, of the meaning of the word is that that is a sin term that defines an act of rebellion. It defines an act of rebellion or disloyalty. Notice that he says, though, the person whose transgression, whose acts of rebellion are forgiven, and forgiven literally means carried away. The person whose transgressions, whose rebellion, whose intentional rebellion against God's order, it's covered. It literally means carried away. This is the act of of removal of sin, removing it, removing guilt, removing even the remembrance of sin. It is forgiven. Notice the next word that he uses is sin. It's translated into English, sin. And it's the word that, that is most familiar throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament that talks about missing the mark. We get our word homardiology in the Greek out of it. Homardiology, the doctrine of sin. Missing the mark. That's what sin means. It's the act that misses. The idea here is that it is an intentional miss. You intentionally avoid God's revealed will. So you can be a 19-year-old college sophomore and you can begin messing things up and somebody comes and talks to you and say, Hey, where did you grow up, man? So did you grow up in a Christian home? Yeah, I grew up in a Christian home. Wow, I, I, really? Where did you go to church? I went to Pastor Van's church, Fellowship Bible Church. I went to church. You can know the truth. You can have been raised up in the church. And you can knowingly, willfully avoid that. Miss it. You missed it. And now you're going to pay the consequences. So not only is he talking about an act of rebellion or disloyalty against God, not only that, but he's talking about an act that intentionally basically misses the revealed will of God. He says here, but that sin is covered. It's covered. 
This is the gracious act of atonement. That's what covered means here in this context. It's an atoning, covering. The blood of Christ comes and covers that sin and ends up scrubbing it, washing it away. Ultimately, in the New Testament, this is the gracious act of atonement by which the sinner is reconciled and the sin is a matter of the past so that the Lord does not bring it up any more as a ground for his displeasure. That's a wonderful thing. So here's David. David's been stacking baggage up by the truckload in his life. His household is characterized by dysfunction. And David says, I'm a blessed man. And I'm a blessed man because my transgression is forgiven and my sin is covered. He doesn't stop there. He says, my iniquity, my iniquity, here's a third term that is used for sin. And this one means a crooked stick, iniquity or crookedness. A bent, a bent, the wrong direction, a crooked or wrong act, a conscious and willful intent to do wrong. Notice the power of the will to decide to do wrongly. But he says in verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The crookedness of my life, the dysfunction of my life, the sin-induced baggage of my life, the Lord doesn't count it against me. Wow. He doesn't count it. That idea of, of not counting sin, the idea that he doesn't bring it up anymore, that it's the same word as justified, does not count, is God's attitude towards those forgiven as being justified. It's a, test, a New Testament salvation word. It's a positional word. It's a, a once-for-all kind of word. It has to do with the day that you run to the cross, you admit your sinfulness, you receive the forgiveness that is in Christ from God by the substitutionary death of Christ where he died for your sin, paid the penalty for your sin, and your faith and trust is in that act alone for your salvation. You are justified. The idea there is that no longer will sin count against you. The word justified has the idea of, of the official record Having no, having no account of your sinfulness. On the official record, there's no account of your sinfulness. And in fact, the only thing that shows up on the record is that you are in Christ. This is when you've been to the cross. This is when you've humbled yourself. This is in brokenness that David is writing this. David is recognizing how foolish he's been. And now he has a joy that's beginning to creep up in him because he said, I'm a blessed man. I am so blessed because my transgression is forgiven, my sin is covered, and the Lord does not count my iniquity against me. And I want to tell you something. This is a spiritual reality. It's a starting point. This means, letter B, this means that sin and dysfunction no longer need to be my identity. It is interesting to me how many people identify with their dysfunction. They, they identify with it and they describe themselves through their dysfunction. Some organizations teach you even to talk that way. Hi, I'm Van, I'm an addict. What's going on in your mind? What I'm telling you is that when you think biblically, 
You can know the joy of all of that being gone and sin forgiven once and for all. This means that sin and dysfunction are no longer my identity. I'm a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. This also means that all of my past sin has been dealt with at the cross with finality. So this is a one-time thing that positions me in salvation. The life application is this. Transformation. Transformation begins with salvation. Transformation of my life begins with salvation. This is what I'm talking about is my justification. I'm talking about being at the foot of the cross, the blood of Christ, cleansing me from all sin. And you say, but Pastor Van, I still got a whole lot of garbage in my life. And I say, I know that. Because we got day-to-day issues to deal with, don't we? But I'm telling you, the beginning of thinking biblically here has to do with understanding how David dealt with those three words. I want to acknowledge that a lot of dysfunction and baggage doesn't have anything to do with anything that you did or I did. Right? You say, Pastor Man, you don't understand. You don't know the people who have hurt me in my life. You don't know the wickedness that has gone on. You want to know why I identify with my dysfunction? It's because all my life I've been told. I remember sitting in fish camp on the Yukon River during my college years with my Uncle Bud. I talk about him a lot. He was an old swashbuckling bush pilot, outdoorsman. Impacted my life at a pretty high level. He was born again man at age 40. He did a whole lot of sinning before age 40. In fish camp, we had time to sit around, and every once in a while, a couple different times in four years, I heard him talk about when he was a boy in the northern Wisconsin with his sisters and what a wicked stepfather did to them. And he would tell us stories. And it'd break your heart. What that wicked man did to those children until they left. I met a young man whose father was so wicked up in Alaska. I met a young man, he was in his early 20s when I met him, and this is 35 years ago. And one day his dad came in and opened the cabin door and he was waiting with the 12-gauge and he shot him three times and killed his dad because he was so sick and tired of what that dad was doing to their house, to them. What do you do with that stuff? How do you handle that stuff? I want to tell you something. All sin is dealt with at the cross. The only place you can deal with sin is the cross. Your own sin and everybody else's sin. The only way you're going to get through that, the only way you're going to get perspective, the only way you're going to figure out how you're going to put this together is run to the cross. And there you understand the substitutionary death of Christ, what God did because of sin, what sin did to God. And there's where you begin with a perspective. And so the starting point is the cross and my salvation. Secondly, David wants us to know that unconfessed sin will destroy my life. Unconfessed sin will destroy my life. We must keep moving here. This is the hurt of dysfunction. This is the hurt of dysfunction. Sin-induced illness is what I think David's talking about. Look what it says in verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He's physically breaking down because of the guilt of sin. 
and because of the pressure of the dysfunction in his life. James talks about this. James talks about bringing the elders in when you're sick and making sure you examine your heart and let them examine you to make sure that sin hasn't brought this illness into your life. Now, I want you to know that mental illness and psychological problems, emotional breakdown, those are serious things and they're complex. And I'm in no way trying to oversimplify the difficulties of people who deal with uh, psychological, emotional, mental illness. I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm not a psychologist. I'm a shepherd of a flock. And I'm going to another shepherd who wrote down a song for us to challenge us spiritually speaking because one thing I know for sure, no matter what a psychologist tells you or a psychiatrist tells you, the only place that you can care for sin is at the cross. That's it. There's no other gizmo gadget or wheelie jig that's going to take care of sin. Just the cross. But mental, emotional, psychological illness can be, not always is, but can be a result of sin. And David's talking about his body literally reacting. He's talking about not being able to eat. He's talking about his food not digesting right. He's talking about having uh, problems sleeping at night. He can't sleep. He can't think. People like that end up long enough in those conditions. Their hair starts falling up out. Their skin changes colors. They have uh, all kinds of symptoms of all kinds of diseases. And here's how it works. you got some younger person maybe as young as six, seven, eight, nine years old, and they are being crushed by dysfunction and by, by the baggage of their own little lives and, or their own decision-making, or maybe they're a little bit older as a teenager and they begin to make decisions of sinfulness in their life and they're living with a guilty conscience and, and they're doing more sin to cover the sin that they were doing or there's more sin being done to them and, and their body begins to respond to that to where they have ulcers and, and to where they have acid reflux and to where they can't think and they can't sleep. And so then they begin to take drugs and they take drink alcohol and they do lots of things that then impair the body even more. And the next thing you know, they're losing weight or they're actually cutting their body or they're, they're, they're starving themselves to death. And the next thing you know, they're down the road and they're in a psychiatrist's office at age 25 and they're diagnosed with at least three different three-letter word diagnosis. What do you do with that? How do you undo that? David says that my bones, my bones shriveled up. They wasted away. And then I was groaning all the day long. This is weariness without relief. This is the hurt of dysfunction. Sin-induced illness, weariness without relief, depression, hopelessness, becoming non-functional. Look at verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. That's a guilty conscience. Listen to me, young people and old people too. One of the most... One of the most precious gifts God ever gave you is a guilty conscience. Don't sear your conscience. Keep it sensitive. And he said, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I didn't even have any strength. I could hardly put one foot in front of the other. I couldn't lift anything anymore. Life application, sin has consequences and it must be dealt with. Sin has consequences and it must be dealt with. The third thing I want you to see from David's song that he wrote in response to his 
baggage-filled life is somewhere along the line, I have to take responsibility. Number three, somewhere along the line, I have to take responsibility. Look what he says in verse five. And then, so my bones are shriveling up. I have no strength in my body. My, my gut isn't working right. I'm, I can't sleep at night. But then, verse five, I acknowledge my sin before you. I am going to define reality now, David says. Somewhere along the line, and he's going to take responsibility. This is hard in my dysfunction. It's hard to do this, but it's necessary. You need to take responsibility for your sin, for your behavior, and reactions to people. For my thought patterns, letter B, and my words. My words, James chapter 3, verse 8. It says there that the tongue is full of deadly poison. There are people whose lives and the rooms of their brain and emotional house are filled up with garbage from the tongues of other people. The things they've been told and the things people have said to them. For my choices, let her see, my decisions, my future. Life application, I must stop making excuses. Look what David said in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin before you and I did not cover my iniquity. No longer am I going to make excuses. I'm not going to cover it up. I'm going to expose it. That means I'm going to define reality. I'm going to call it what it is. And then he said, I will confess. I will own up to it. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then you forgave my iniquity. And I need to just sit here and think about that for a while. Selah. Notice that he used all three of the sin words in this section, in verse 5 as well. Sin, iniquity, transgression in a different order. See, somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, you've got to stop making excuses and you've got to take responsibility. I, I don't know if it is because of your own sin that you've accumulated baggage. You've got to stop making excuses, if it is. Somewhere along the line, you even have to Stop allowing other people to define you with the kind of sin they're bringing into your life. You might even be a part of a family that has generational sin going on. And you might need to say, you know what, it's going to stop with me. I'm going to break the chain. I am not going to be the way my granddad was and my dad or whatever. You see, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I no longer covered it up. I've exposed it and I'm transparent and I'm defining reality. Fourthly, I want you to see that he finds his finds in God, his refuge and safety. Find in God my refuge and safety. There is help in my dysfunction. This is encouraging. There is help in my dysfunction. Look what he says in verse 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. That's today. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Those waters will not reach the one who has been praying to God today. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah again. There is help in my dysfunction. Notice there's four things that David talks about here. The first one is prayer. He says, let the adversity drive you to God in prayer. David begins to pray and that's the breakthrough in his life. 
When he began to pray to God is when he began to understand and redefine the realities of his life. And so he, he's in a time of adversity. This shriveling up of his bones is almost like a punishment from God because of his behavior. God is letting the sin do its work in his life to wake him up. God will let you do that. God will let your sin grind you down until you begin to pray and you begin to wake up. This summer, we're going to do the book of Jonah in four weeks. That happened to Jonah, didn't it? He's down in the belly of a fish and God just lets him go until finally he wakes up and he began to cry out to God. So you got you to be really sick of yourself and then you're ready to cry out to God. Let adversity drive you to God in prayer. Let her be when I'm out of control. I can count on God's promises. Look what he says. It is a promise that the rush of these great waters, this adversity in my life, all of these difficulties that I'm facing... This abusive situation, it's like a flood in my life. The picture here in the Hebrew is of a, of a stone channel that's been carved out like an aqueduct and there's too much water coming and the water in a great hydraulic push is, is running down through the channel and if you were standing there, it'll just blow you through. And he said, look, surely the rush of great waters won't even reach you. That's a promise, he says. We got to lean on the promises of God. And I'm not talking about just little church Sunday school answers. They're the right answers, but sometimes they're superficial. I'm talking about on my face before God in prayer. I'm talking about I'm talking about claiming the promises of God. I'm talking about finding in God my protection. That's letter C, my protection. Look what he says. He said, um, "You are my hiding place. It's a place of protection." Where do I go from shelter from all of the dysfunction? I have to run to God. Letter D, find comfort in God's presence. You will surround me. You will be there with shouts of deliverance. That's my, the presence of God. Look at the end of verse 8. I, counsel, I will counsel you with my eye upon you, God says. So the, we go to God in prayer. We claim His promises. We find in Him our protection. We are comforted in His presence. The life application is that I must find help. I must find help in the right places and things. Because here's what happens. I'm facing adversity. i got baggage in my life. i got all this dysfunction. And then I walk into my home and I can't deal with it anymore. So then I might do what this little girl's doing, but I don't think inappropriately. Instead of going to God, claiming His promises, being on my face in prayer, beginning a newness of life in Christ... What do I do? I do the wrong things to help myself. I eat more. I eat. Or I drink or I take drugs or I smoke pot or I, I spend money. Or I go collect more stuff. Or I have more sex. Finding somehow a few minutes of relief in my baggage cluttered world. Never dealing with reality. Avoiding reality. Fifth, there is another way to live, David says. There is another way to live. Hey, I want to tell you, there is healing from dysfunction. There is healing from dysfunction. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, I will instruct you. That's God talking to David. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. What's he talking about here? He's saying, what he's saying is, look, David, there's another way to live, and I will instruct you in that way. I'll give you the instruction on a new way to live. There is healing 
from dysfunction. There is healing from dysfunction. Notice what he says, instruct, the word instruct, to give insight and understanding. I will instruct you, that is, I will give you insight, and I will give you understanding, God says. Then he says, letter B, I will teach you, that's giving instruction and directions. I need directions in my life. If I'm going to sort this thing out, what am I going to do? I need directions. He's going to teach you. And then he says, I will counsel you, I will counsel you, that's to give advice. I need advice from God. It comes straight from his word. But there is a life application here that I'm reminded of in the idea of life change, the idea of learning a new lifestyle, the idea of changing from old ways. You need to understand in life application that though there is another way to live, change takes time. Change takes time. How long do you think these people have been hauling junk into their living room? A long time. And you know, sometimes you just can't undo all that mess in one easy step. I've shared this with you many times as well, this picture that I draw on my desk with people. I, um, when I'm counseling people sometimes and I listen to their story and I don't know what to do and I'm, I'm thinking and I'm praying while they're talking and, and they tell me what's happening and I say, Lord, I don't know how to help them. Lord, what are the verses? What, what would your mind be here? And then sometimes I stop them finally. I say, stop just a minute. I think I have it figured out. I think I understand. I, I've showed you this many times, but I'll do it again since I have my board here. And I say, I can draw a picture of your life. And this is what I do. I take a piece of paper out and I scribble on it like this. And I say, there it is. I've, I've just drawn a portrait of your life. And sometimes when I look up, there's little tears starting to come down. Because they say, you know, you're right. You're right, man. That's my life. It is just a tangled up, nasty mess. And then I try to give them some encouragement. And, you know, this is why... This is why we run to the cross right here, by the way, because there is, there is no guidance counselor, there is no therapist, there is no life coach, there is no psychologist, there is no drug that can untangle this life mess. You can't, you can't do it. There's too many marriages and dysfunction. It reminds me of the woman in John 4 that came to Jesus. It's a wonderful story. And, John, and Jesus is sitting there and you know, he kind of knows what he's going to do ahead of time. You know that, right? And, and this lady comes to the well there. And Jesus says to her, hey, why don't you run home, get your husband and bring him back to me. And I'm going to tell you something about living water. I'm going to change your life. And she looks at Jesus and she says, well, I, I, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you never mess with Jesus, young people. Jesus says... You're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. And he says to her, he doesn't lecture her. He doesn't demean her. He loved her. And he said, how would you like a drink of living water so that you will never thirst after all that garbage again? That's what he does. It's something, isn't it? You see, you can't undo this stuff like Jesus could do it a lot faster than we can, but he's still at work. You can't just erase that stuff out of your life. Now the blood of Christ can cover it positionally, cleanse it. That's why we have to run to the cross. But when you've been living that tangled up mess, sometimes it's hard to learn to live in order. 
Sometimes it's hard to retrain the way the old brain thinks. So you got to be patient. That's why you need to be in church. That's why you need mentors. That's why you need good friends. That's why you need people around you who can hold you accountable when you start making dumb decisions again and you start doing repeated behaviors that you've been doing for 39 years because you just keep doing it. That's what you do. But there is another way to live. But it takes time. And that is sanctification. That is the working of God, retraining and changing you. Let's wrap up. Learn the joy of a surrendered walk with God. Number six, learn the joy of a surrendered walk with God. He says in verse nine, don't be like a horse or a mule. They have to have a bit to make them go where they want, where they're supposed to go. Why don't you have the kind of heart that just willingly goes where you're supposed to go? This is a heart. This is the heart of one in dysfunction. If you're going to overcome dysfunction, you've got to change your heart and you've got to have a willing heart to letter A, follow the Lord willingly, follow the Lord. Letter B, to trust in the Lord. Don't make him force you. Willingly follow. Life application. Focus on God, not the wounds of the past. You've got to get your eyes off your junk and you've got to get your eyes on God. Letter number seven. This is good news, folks. Look what David says. He says, I I was shriveled up and my bones were poking through my skin and I could, could not even function. And now I can laugh again. You can laugh again. That's good news, isn't it? There is hope. That's where we begin. There is hope for dysfunction. Number one, the hope began in the blessed person whose sin is covered Remember verse 1, blessed, blessed, that's a deep-seated joy and contentment. Life application, you got to look forward, though you can't look back. you got to quit looking behind you, you got to look forward. And we got to let God do His work, His sanctifying work, through the power of the gospel. Can you identify the junk in your life? Remember, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be identifying junk because junk brings dysfunction, baggage. It accumulates. And oh, the joy of just simple obedience. Oh, the delight of a clear conscience. The healing that God can bring. I'm not trying to minimize some of the difficult relationships that people have to deal with. You probably need good godly counsel to help you figure out what to do with some things. But I'm telling you, there's hope and you can laugh again. You can laugh again. God is greater than your baggage. God is greater than your dysfunction. Okay? Let's stand and bow our heads before him. I'll be quiet for just a minute. If, if you need God to help you this morning, why don't you tell Him in the quietness of your own mind? Just tell Him what, what you need help with. Ask Him for, for grace. If we can be of help to you, stop us, set up an appointment. We'll try to guide you in the right direction for help and accountability, encouragement. Don't forget Friday nights with RU. Father, we, um, we need your help. 
We've made many choices and decisions, and we've had people around us making bad choices and decisions, and we've allowed a lot of baggage in our lives. We need to learn how to think biblically, Lord. We want a, a newness of life to restore the joy of our salvation or to give us a joy in a brand new salvation for those who need to run to the cross for the first time. Father, would you just give us a wisdom, give us a grace and a discernment, give us a, a willfulness through prayer and your promises and your protection to begin to create the arena of change in our lives that we need. You can do it. We can't. And so we surrender ourselves to you today, asking for you to transform us and then transform our marriages and transform our children and transform our homes. In Jesus' name.